to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Elise Dorita. Today's guest is Melinda DeLeal from Cozen O'Connor. Melinda spoke to us from Philadelphia, where she is based. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Melinda. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Elise. Glad to be here. So we're going to jump right in. Could you start by telling us what your early years were like and about your background? Sure. Um, I'm afraid it's not really all that interesting. I grew up as kind of a kid in the suburbs of New York. I lived in Queens for a while till I was in second or third grade and then moved out to the suburbs in New Jersey, uh, went to public school, um, moved around a lot, um, but pretty, pretty standard stuff. So when and how did you decide to become a lawyer? So I didn't have a kind of burning passion for being a lawyer from the beginning. And, you know, there are probably a lot of reasons why it didn't occur to me, not the least of which is that I was growing up in the 60s and early 70s. I graduated from high school in 1977. So for women, it would be a pretty unusual jump to think of doing that. Not that it wasn't happening, but it wasn't nearly as common as the world that my daughter grew up in um, today, where, where that was an option for her from the beginning. So I left for college when I was about 16, and I wound up going to three different colleges. It was a little bit of a journey for me. Um, I was not really a student in high school, and it took me a while to kind of get my feet under me. But by the time I got to the end of you know, by the time I could see the end of college, um, I had to think about what to do. And I needed to make a living and knew that there was, I'm not a math science person. So this seemed to make sense. And I took the LSATs almost on a whim, um, did really well in them, applied to law school, given the kind of journey I'd had through my educational experience, was utterly shocked uh, that I got into Harvard, but I did. And then, of course, I had to go. So that's, that's kind of what I did. It wasn't something I started out to do. It wound up being really fun for me. It was the first time I had started and finished a school with my class. Um, and had had that full experience, and I loved being there and doing that, but I can't say that I was convinced it was something I was going to do until I actually got into law school, and I can't say I've ever gotten over the surprise of finding that I did that and and liked doing it. Yeah, I also went to two colleges, so I think that is kind of a unique uh, experience that not everyone has. So I definitely understand that. I went to two separate colleges in Massachusetts. Um, so what in your background and such personality sparked a passion for pro bono and access to justice? I, I can answer that in a couple of different ways. So now having said that I went to a bunch of different colleges, I'll tell you the first one that I went to was called Hampshire. And that school had been around for about five years when I started there. Um, it started in 1971 or so, and I went in 1977. And it was a really unusual place, even for its time, really progressive, really alternative. Um, and the the population there was was really invested in progressive politics and and care for um, for vulnerable people, and we were still at the at the end of the 60s, really, even though it was the mid 70s. So uh, I started thinking hard about those issues 
then. Uh, and because I had moved around a lot, um, and maybe for some other reasons, I always kind of felt a little bit like an outsider and always sympathized with people who felt like outsiders. Again, you know, being smart and female and having some kind of ambition was, although certainly not unique to me, um, was not something that always made me popular um, in school and, uh, and you know, just, just watching what happened to other people at the time. Um, and I think that, you know, I was raised Jewish, not religious, but Jewish, and I think that um, that's also a population that often feels like we're on the outside of things. So I related to people who who felt that way. Uh, so I graduated from law school, and again, you know, thought about doing public interest, needed to make a living, um, went into a law firm, and I, I got started at a firm, I, I got started at Jenner and & Block, and Jenner was deeply committed to pro bono, and I did a lot of pro bono while I was there and loved it, always found that I was really more interested in that kind of work than in commercial work. The fact that a case was worth a lot of money didn't interest me nearly as much as the legal issues involved or the people whose life I could be affecting. So I got into it then, eventually moved back to New York, went to Paul Weiss, also a firm that does a lot of pro bono, and continued to do it there, and just really found that, that those cases were the ones that, that grabbed me. It's funny that you mentioned Hampshire because one of my schools was UMass Amherst, and that's where I graduated ah. from, so five colleges here. Yep. So then how'd you get to Cozen O'Connor? So that, there, were, there were a lot of steps in the middle. I was at big law firms for a while. Eventually, I wound up coming to uh, Philadelphia, eventually being 25 years ago at this point, a long time really because my husband teaches at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And we didn't have any particular intention to move to Philadelphia, but when he got that job, here we are. So I started as a litigator at a small boutique firm here and eventually had kids, um, tried to work when they were small and for a variety of reasons, didn't have any family in town. My husband was traveling all the time, was really almost the sole caregiver for these two kids and couldn't make that work. So I left the practice of law entirely. I stayed home with them for eight years and raised them and then went back and worked at the University of Pennsylvania, originally part-time, mostly doing, I was working in student conduct, so I was doing some Title IX work. I was working on cases of students who were uh, involved in, you know, either a lot of them were accused of things like plagiarism and sexual assault, some fairly serious issues, but also working with students who got into that kind of trouble because something else was going on in their lives. Um, I wound up teaching during that time, so I taught at Wharton. I taught a basic, if this is Tuesday, it must be torts kind of class um, to undergrads. I taught at the uh, I taught a, a class in in the School of Social Work about law and social policy. And at that point, in addition to, to teaching those graduate students, I started looking even more deeply than I had before into the whole uh, question of the ways in which law and social policy interact. But as time went on, um, those jobs, some of them came to a natural end. Some of them just I was kind of at the end of, of um, 
my, you know, I just, I needed to do something else. And my kids left for college, so there was no longer a need for the really either part-time or flexible schedule that that had given me before. Steve Cozen is a, a is everywhere in Philadelphia um, and everywhere at the University of Pennsylvania and particularly at the law school. So we got particularly involved with him because at some point my husband this is the this is the funnest fact about me and Cousin O'Connor. My husband holds the Stephen Cozen chair at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. This is many years ago, many years before I started here. So I know Steve Cozen not incredibly well, but I would run into it at various social functions. And at one point I was telling him my sad tale of woe about not wanting what I wanted to do next. And the next thing I knew, a couple weeks later, I got a phone call from the managing partner's office at Cozen O'Connor, and she asked me to come in and talk to Vince McGinnis, who's the managing partner here. And I had no idea why, but I thought it would probably be a good idea to take that meeting. So I went in, and Vince started talking, and clearly he thought that Steve Cozen had told me why I was there, and he had not. We had a little bit of a, of a, of a uh, communications gap, which was actually kind of great at the time because... Uh, after we talked for a little while, Vince offered me the job that I have now. That's a great story. So before we get into that role, which is one of the first, it's kind of the firm, could you tell us a little bit about the firm itself? Sure. Uh, so this is a firm that was started in the 70s, so it's pretty new. It has grown dramatically even since I got here. When I got here, there were I'm guessing about 500 people in the firm, 500 lawyers, and now we're closer to 800 lawyers, and we've got about 30 offices. It's based in Philadelphia, obviously growing really quickly, and as that kind of growth implies, changing really quickly. Uh, it is a firm that, ha that prides itself on having a wide range of services for all of its different clients and also on being really entrepreneurial. More than most firms that I've worked in, it's very practice group based. So lawyers work within their practice groups and the practice groups are headed up by people who have some real agency for the work that their lawyers are doing. And that has, it, it has an effect on pro bono as well. Um, I think it works very well for the firm, and it's made me think about the way that law works in a little bit a little bit different way than I um, than I might have at some of the the previous places that I worked at. So we're working within a bunch of different groups. We're talking about the kinds of skills lawyers have. We're talking about the practice groups they work in, um, the locations, the different offices each have a different feel to them. So it's an interesting place to be and to to watch the growth. Great. So we're going to circle back to your position. You're actually the first person in the firm to serve as full-time director of pro bono engagement. How do you spend your time and what is your role and function? Uh, my role is pretty easy to qualify because I do pretty literally everything relating to the running of a pro bono program here. So I am the person anybody comes to when they have a question about pro bono, whether it's somebody who's been here for years or somebody who's just joining the firm and would like to get involved or would like to bring their matters over. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to our vari my various constituents, right? Lawyers within the firm, nonprofits, and other sources of cases or potential clients outside the firm, other pro bono coordinators at law firms and in corporate um, 
in corporate in-house programs. I spend a lot of time traveling so I can do all of that, as you can imagine, with you know, about 30 different offices. You know, of course, that, that's not quite 30 different places. For example, we have offices in Cherry Hill and Conshohocken, and I don't, there's not that much traveling involved in that. But I am all over the country much of the time. I spend a lot of time trying to pair lawyers and clients. Too much time on sort of managerial work, paperwork. I open all the matters. I approve all the expenses. I manage all the conflicts issues. And I work within the firm to develop pro bono policies that um, that that will benefit the firm going forward. So it's a lot. Definitely is. Um, so is there anything else you wish you could be doing more of, bearing that you actually have the time since you are doing so much, or anything less of, because you did mention the paperwork? Yeah, well, obviously I do less paperwork. Nobody wants to do more <laughs> paperwork. We're trying to work at a system where it's easier, for example, to open matters, so I don't actually have to get involved in that all the time. But for now, there is a lot of just that kind of stuff. Um, and I wish I could be doing more pro bono work myself. I do do some, but both both my own cases and um, and and assisting other people, giving advice, revising things like that. But I really wish that I could be more involved in the substantive practice of law than I have time for right now. So, what would you say is your greatest challenge? I think my greatest challenge is finding the right kinds of opportunities to incentivize people who are maybe reluctant to get involved in pro bono so that they'll they'll want to do that. I think for, for many of us, our greatest challenge is, is getting lawyers involved. There are always some people who will do that no matter what, and other people who would be very hard to motivate, but there's that whole middle ground of people who if you only found the right thing and made it accessible to them, I know that they'd be able to do a lot of good in the world. And so finding those opportunities and matching them to the right people is both my greatest challenge and, and the most fun part of the job in some ways. So obviously it is challenging, but what have you found that has worked? I know it's always a work in progress. It is always a work in progress. So a lot of what works is just finding the right opportunities for people. And the way that you do that, the way that I do that anyway, it's really a very retail activity. I go out and I talk to individual lawyers about what they want to do, the kinds of topics that move them, uh, what kind of law they practice, what kind of law they like to get more experience in, what their time frames are. Can they devote a lot of time to it or a little time? Could they devote a lot of time if that time were flexible? Uh, what's, the, what's their annual kind of flow like? What time of year is busy for them? Being able to make those matches is really important. Uh, and being able to make it easy, find the work for them open that matter number for them, give them the engagement letter, all those things that feel to them like a barrier between them and getting the work done, many of those can be swept away. I mean, we as pro bono professionals spend most of our time thinking about pro bono work. It seems obvious to us that it's there and it's to be done. But I think for people whose days are taken up with other things, putting it in front of them and making it easy is the most important thing that I can do. The other thing is to make it feel like something that the office is engaged in and make it feel, you know, again, it's another way of putting it in front of them. So whether that's sending out messages to the office about a great result in a case or creating um, creating 
office project. So some offices, for example, a bunch of people will do an immigration project. They're not all working on the same one, but they're all working on an immigration project. And so they have the opportunity to work together, to talk to one another about it. And then it becomes part of kind of office bonding, not just separate pro bono work. So that, those have been my, my greatest successes in motivating people. Those are all great ideas. So I want to pivot real quickly. I don't know if you know this, but recently we had back someone you may know, Jonathan Baum, and I heard you have a little history. Could you share a little about that? <laughs> I was planning to talk about Jonathan Baum. <laughs> um, yes, and, and he probably let's, – let's see if Jonathan's and my stories line up. Um, so Jonathan and I were associates together at Jenner and Block. He was, I think, a first-year associate there when I started as a summer associate, He's just, just barely ahead of me. And so we became friends, and particularly, I'm going to embarrass him if he didn't tell this story, but uh, went to John Hughes movies together. That was, that was our trick. We would go see these, like, pretty in pink, 16 candles kinds of movies together. Um, and... Jonathan, while I was still at Jenner, left to become one of the first people who did full-time pro bono in the country. And I always thought that was just the coolest thing. I have literally no idea why. And he was the only one who did that, right? So it wasn't a job I was going to go out and look for because it was such incredible entrepreneurial zeal on his part that he persuaded a firm to, to do that. It was awesome. Um, so I didn't do it then because I wasn't nearly that awesome. And I have literally no idea why it didn't occur to me in the intervening, I don't know, 25 years or more to look and see whether other people maybe had that job. But it took me quite a while to come back to the notion that that, that had become a job that people do. Um, and I was really excited when I realized that this was actually a possibility and was out there. And I called Jonathan and asked him all kinds of questions, which he was, was, and still is very generous in answering for me. But Jonathan and I have been friends for a long time. He's pretty great. That's wonderful. Yeah. We uh, love him on the podcast enough to have him back twice. And it really is a small world. Yep. So we recently launched a new segment on the podcast called tell us about your first time. Could you tell us about your first one of your early pro bono matters that you've handled? Sure. So this is, this is one of my favorite pro bono stories. Um, I graduated from law school in 1985, started in 1982. So, of course, things were changing, and th this was, I'm, I'm going to say, depth rather than height of the AIDS crisis. This is when it was really just starting, um, or at least just becoming public information. Uh, and without talking about the horror that, that were those times. I had a friend in law school named Ben Schatz. And Ben left, when we got out of law school, Ben, in a, an extraordinary move, went to San Francisco to work for a group that did LGBT rights and, um, and, and advocacy on behalf of HIV AIDS, uh, people, people infected with HIV AIDS. Um, I can't I can't be, I can't strongly enough tell you how extraordinary it was that Ben did that. It wasn't a thing at the time, really. So I went to Jenner and Block, and at some point in the next year or two, 
Ben called me and he told me a story about something that was happening to a young man at a school called Lincoln Christian College in, in Illinois. And he asked me to take this case. So here's, here's what happened. Um, there was this young man who was at Lincoln Christian College studying sacred music. He had been friends with a female student at the college for as long as he'd been there. And as they came near to graduation, uh, she asked him if they were going to get married because I, I think that's basically what happened at the school, that if you had a close friend of the opposite sex, the expectation was that you would you would marry at the end of, of school. It seemed like nobody was surprised that this is the way this conversation went, except that this man made the mistake of telling her that he couldn't marry her because he thought he might be gay. So she took this information to the dean of the school and told the school that Greg could not graduate because he was probably gay. The dean called Greg in. This all sounds crazy telling the story now. Um, the dean called Greg in and told him that he couldn't graduate unless he saw this therapist. But if he saw this therapist, that he would let him graduate. So Greg goes to this therapist. It turns out later the therapist has literally no qualifications to be a therapist. He has no degrees. He has no certification. He has absolutely nothing. And the therapist puts Greg through the mill, including doing things like requiring him to write down his dreams and his sexual fantasies and give them to the therapist in a notebook. This goes on for a while. Ultimately, the therapist goes back to the dean and says to the dean, Greg's not progressing and he's not changing. Surprise, he's still gay. So at that point, the dean decides that Greg can't graduate. So our claim was that the dean violated a contract. He said to Greg, if you go to this therapist, then you can graduate. There was nothing about him becoming not gay or changing in any way in that contract. So there was a claim about that and another claim about the therapist violating, um, violating confidentiality by handing over the information to which the therapist's response was, um, that he wasn't actually a therapist, so he had no confidentiality obligations. This goes on, and ultimately we wind up taking the appeal of this case to the Illinois, and this is when I got involved, when this case was being appealed to the Illinois Supreme Court. What made this even more fun was that every year, at least at that point, the Illinois Supreme Court held its arguments once a year, one civil argument, one criminal argument, in front of the University of Illinois Law School. They would just take the show on the road to the University of Illinois Law School, and the arguments were held in front of the entire law school. So I, in a snowstorm, drive down to the University of Illinois to do this oral argument on these issues. Was there a contract breach? Was there a confidentiality breach? And there was a, a statute of limitations argument that I no longer recall the details of. On, on this, what we would now call an LGBT rights argument against this Christian school. The school made arguments, of course, that there was no contract, that they had religious rights, but none of that, the religious rights issue didn't really matter because this was a straightforward contract. Uh, so we went to Illinois, we argued the case, and we won.
You can still look this up, but you've got to use Melinda Levine because my name wasn't Delil yet. And there's a published opinion on that subject. A couple of, of postscripts to this. One was I left the firm soon after that, and I needed to turn over the last bit of kind of tying up loose ends to somebody in the firm. So I went to a friend at the firm, and I asked him whether he would be willing to do that. He's, he was a good friend and a great litigator, and he told me in a way that was really confusing to me at the time that he couldn't do it because if he helped me with this, people would think he was gay. 1987, maybe, and if you were thought to be gay in a law firm, it genuinely could have very negative implications about your future. I spent a lot of time in the 80s accompanying friends to firm events because they couldn't take their actual partners. So I passed it along to somebody else, and I left. A couple of postscripts for the characters in the story. My friend at Jenner and Block, who said that to me, ultimately left his wife for a man, now runs the LGBT group at Jenner and Block. My friend Ben went on to be a singer. He calls himself Rachel. He is not trans. He's, he's a, you know, he, he, he dresses up. He's um, in, in, a, in a, a band called the Kinsey Six, S-I-C-K-S, and that's how Ben has spent his life. And he is awesome, and you should all Google him because watching Ben sing and talk and watching their music is a, is a really fun experience, but Ben has not, for the most part, practiced law since then. So that was my first pro bono case. You're right. That definitely sounds like a crazy case <laughs> in a story when you were living it and how even, uh, I guess, this thing doesn't change so much. Uh, I did not expect like such a, a story just because, I mean, we don't think about that anymore, that how times were so different. I wish they were as different as we think they are. I still do cases for um, LGBT rights, and we still get involved in cases where you want to look at them and go, oh, how are people doing that? But the good news is that we, I hope, certainly not in many of the parts of the country we live in, um, although I don't, I don't want to speak for everybody, there are lots of out LGBT people in law firms, and I have not heard anybody in a very long time tell me that they can't work on these cases because there would be assumptions made about them that would harm their careers. And that doesn't feel like a lot of progress, but, but it really is. Even for those of us who have been practicing, you know, not for 100 years, but for a while. So what are some other examples of pro bono cases that have been particularly meaningful to you? I've done some other cases for uh, working with children who are in, usually in foster care, often with their grandparents. I had another early case that I still think about, even though this, the girl involved in this case has got to be in her 30s or so by now. So this child came to us through Catholic Charities. She was living with her grandparents, but she'd been abandoned with her grandparents by her mother after the mother's boyfriend was put in jail for raping this two-year-old. Uh, and the mother took off, leaving the kids with grandparents who I, I don't think were the mother's parents. I'm not actually sure there were her biological grandparents as I sit here today, but with this couple who 
had cared for her for many years. The child was now a young teenager, maybe 12-ish, um, and had been with them for a while. Mother had vanished. Eventually, the mother came back and announced that she was taking the child because the boyfriend, you know, the one who raped the child, the boyfriend was getting out of jail. And he was going to um, come back and live with her, and she wanted the girl to come home with them and to live with them as a family. The grandparents understandably panicked, and I got involved. We wound up being able to terminate the mother's parental rights and to get the grandparents at least custody over the child on the way to adoption. So now they had benefits for her, and they were able to protect this child. I finished that case. It was over. I wasn't really in touch with them. Months later, I come back to my apartment building, and I was still young, didn't have children, and there's this big bouquet of flowers waiting for me with my doorman, which utterly confused me. Eventually, I realized it was Mother's Day, but that didn't get me too far. These grandparents had sent this bouquet. They'd figured out where I lived. They'd sent this bouquet from the child on Mother's Day. It's all pretty great. Yeah, that is uh, definitely a touching gesture. I mean, probably would have cried if I were you. <laughs> I've represented many children since then, uh, and I'm involved in a case now representing a child who's actually being cared for by his grandmother. Um, but that was one of the most extreme cases of really, really feeling like I was protecting a child from a, an immediate threat um, that I'd been involved in. So we're going to shift focus a little back onto the pro bono program. What's on the horizon? Do you have anything new in the works? Because I'm so new here, everything is always a little bit new. And because we really, I, I really try to match pro bono projects to their, to the individual. I have fewer programs really than I think is, are, are maybe usual in law firms. But I do have to say that not surprisingly, given what's going on in the world, a lot of people have become interested in working on immigration cases. So the things that we have really been ramping up on lately are doing a lot of immigration cases um, and also a lot of cases for veterans. We have ramped up our participation in working on cases of veterans who have experienced military sexual trauma recently. So I would say that that those two cases, and particularly using those two kinds of cases as a focus for particular offices, are the things that I've been most involved with recently. But I think we're we're always doing something new, right? It's it's a constantly moving, particularly in this this political climate. It's fast moving, and people want to do something. And I think that anything they're doing to help is great. That's great. So um, if you had a magic wand, what's one thing you would change about law firm pro bono or access to justice? So I think that the thing that all of us would change about access to justice is that it just needs funding. None of us can do much without additional resources. The amount of, of resources that we're all, despite our best efforts, able to pour into this is, is never enough to really 
provide meaningful access to justice to all the people who need it. That's not to say that what we're doing isn't great and important and we do a lot of good things, but obviously I think all of us would, would like additional resources. Um, that's partly on the on the kind of individual case basis. I also think that systemically, I'd like to see some procedural changes in the law. It would be nice to see a change in the law on our ability to bring class actions, on standing doctrine, um, on pleading doctrine. All of these things are problematic in some ways for our ability to continue to do, do impact litigation, even though I um, I think we're doing a great job on it, and we're we're working our way around those things. But I would like to change those those doctrines in order to make it easier for us to get our day in court on behalf of our clients. Definitely. So, who is your pro bono role model, slash access to justice role model, and why? You can pick more than one because I know it's hard to choose just one. <laughs> and in fact, I'm not going to choose. I mean, this is where I wanted to talk about Jonathan Baum, who was my initial pro bono role model, uh, somebody who is that committed to this on an individual basis and willing to take those kinds of personal and professional hits to get it done that early on. I mean, that was just extraordinary. Uh, other than that, my colleagues at EBCO have been incredibly welcoming and incredibly helpful to me. Every time I've ever reached out to anybody, they've, they've been more than willing to devote their time and energy to focusing on whatever my recent problem is. And I think that the way that everybody works together in that group is just extraordinary. It's really interesting because, you know, in some ways we're competitors. And when I talk to people in the law firm about the kinds of cooperation that go on among pro bono counsel, it's, it seems odd, right, that we would all be always so much on the same side and so supportive of one another. But I've been really struck by that, and I'm really grateful for it. Those are great choices. So I want to uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we had a great conversation. Thank you, Elise. I really appreciate the opportunity to do this. New and archive episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Please take a moment to leave an Apple Podcast review. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback and would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and questions to pro bono at probonoinst.org.